Well, as we come to the end of our series on the spiritual war, but more significantly of the book of Ephesians, I want to take this time for us to just stop and think about what's really important in this world. For us as Christians, we should obviously know that our relationship with God and Jesus Christ is most important. Our time in the Word, our growth as Christians, that is vital. And we know that in this world, it is easy to get sidetracked. It is easy to get thrown off, especially with all the politics that are going on. Even the health concerns, COVID, the vaccine that's possibly coming down, and even now amongst uh, pastors, we're talking about the COVID and some uh, medications or really just uh, some um, kind of vitamins, if you will, that people can take to help protect them, but are hard to get because of just the culture that we live in right now. And we can also get caught up in our work situations. You know, maybe at your workplace, you're worried about things that are going on, and especially in this economic crisis, there are a lot of companies that are starting to lay off people. There are a lot of companies where if you are an employee there, you may not know exactly how secure your job is. There is uncertainty with a lot of schools in terms of when they will reopen. Fortunately, we don't have that issue here, but there are a lot of schools that still haven't reopened. Kids online and having to learn online and having to spend all day staring at a computer screen, no matter uh, no matter the situation, and it's no wonder for us why so many kids wanted to be together in person for Awana, so we're thankful for that opportunity for sure. And for us as believers, when we think about all that's going on in this nation, we can get really caught up with the injustice of it all. We can really get caught up in the injustice of people groups and political parties, the things that are happening, the things that are being said. But we want to remind ourselves that this world, once again, and I say it often, and I can never say it often enough, and I will continue to say it for as long as the Lord allows me to be a preacher, and that's that this world is falling away. This world is temporal. We have an eternal world that we are looking forward to. We have an eternal kingdom that we are looking forward to. And we even remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he says, do not build treasures here on earth that can fade away and rust, but rather build your treasures in heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added onto you. So we remember those words from our Lord, and we have to remind ourselves of it often. The Bible reminds us of it often, because we as people need to be reminded of it often. Even we with sanctified hearts and minds, we who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, even in our flesh, it is still easy to get too caught up in worldly matters, is it not? And so we want to always be in the scriptures, we want to always be in the church to worship, and one of the beautiful benefits of worshiping together, one of the beautiful benefits of coming together and going through the scriptures together is that it constantly reminds us of what we have so easily forgotten through the week. And as we grow as Christians, hopefully we don't need to be reminded as much that our walk through the week is more steady 
But even when your walk is steady, you want to continue to go into the Scripture so that your knowledge can go even deeper, so that your understanding of God's will can be even better, more comprehensive. You can be more focused now on discipling others, sharing the gospel, participating in Bible studies, doing what you can to build up the church. And so that's what I love about this book, Ephesians. You know, when I first came here during the candidating process, that was probably the question that I was asked most often, what is your vision for the church? What is your vision for the church? And it's a common question. I got asked that a lot when I was visiting or talking to other churches. What is your vision for the church? And my answer would always be the same. My vision for the church is what God's vision is for the church. And there is no better letter to go through to help us understand God's vision for the church than the book of Ephesians. Because Ephesians says a lot about the body of Christ and how we are founded upon the truth of the gospel and how we are united upon that truth and how we are to walk according to that truth. And so as we come back to now the end of the book of Ephesians, it is only fitting that Paul is going to end with what we need to focus on while we're upon this world, and that is the gospel. You see, none of the blessings that we saw in the book of Ephesians when you read through chapters 1 through 3, none of those blessings mean anything without the gospel, because all the blessings in Ephesians assumes that you are saved. It assumes that you understand that it's only by grace through faith that you are saved, and it's not a work of yourselves. It's not a work of man, but rather it is God and God alone, and He does it for a purpose that we would walk in the works that He has prepared for us beforehand. You'll find that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And of course, when you get to chapter 4, verse 1, the central commandment to all the book of Ephesians is very clear that Paul exhorts us, he implores us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. And of course, that calling by which we've been called is referring to our salvation. That now that we have been saved and we have received all these heavenly riches from God, we have all these spiritual blessings, we have all these riches in heaven awaiting us. We have the promise of eternal salvation, presence, the eternal presence of our God in the future. We always have a hope to look forward to. And so now while we're here, the least that we can do is walk in a manner that's worthy of that wondrous call that we have received by grace. And so the last several weeks, we've been going through the spiritual warfare. We've been going through the verses that talk about the spiritual war, that talk about the armor of God. So the armor of God, part 12, and this is the prayer for Paul and final greeting. So believe it or not, we will get to the finish line, despite what some of you might think. And our purpose really for this morning is to be reminded from Paul's prayer request the importance of our dependence upon God. We're going to learn from Paul's prayer request the importance of our dependence upon God, and we will also finish out the conclusion, the final greetings, and that's the outline. We're basically looking at Paul's prayer request followed by the conclusion of Ephesians. And the final section, we'll just read through it as we have in the past, Chapter 6, verse 10 is where the spiritual warfare starts, and we read, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against these schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, and that cannot be stated enough times. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the rulers and against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. And that is the call to spiritual warfare. And then from verses 14 through 17, we have the armor of God. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Then verse 16, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And that is a reminder that we are under constant attack from spiritual forces. We are under attack from the evil one, and that is Satan. And then verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then verse 18, we've been looking at this the last two weeks, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And then we get to verse 19, where we'll start to study this morning. When Paul says, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And just as a recap of the last couple of weeks, when we were looking at prayer, we talked about the fullness of prayer. We saw that with the opening phrase, with all prayer and petition, we talked about the frequency of prayer. And we saw that with the command to pray at all times. We talked about the power of prayer, which is to pray at all times in the Spirit, that we are in the Holy Spirit, we walk by the Spirit, and when we pray, we want to pray in the Spirit. And then last week, we talked about the steadfastness of prayer, which goes on to say, with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And that last part is the intercessions of prayer, that we are interceding for all the saints. And last week, as you may remember, I gave you a list of ways that you can pray for one another. And this is the same list that you saw last week, but really what I want to highlight from that list is that the list, this is an example of how I pray for you guys, and what you see from that list is that the priorities are spiritual rather than physical. We tend to think of physical needs when we ask for prayer requests. We tend to think of physical needs when we go before God. We don't often think about spiritual needs, and that's where our priority really should be. In fact, if you look at the examples of prayers, whether it's from our Lord Jesus Christ or any of the apostles or disciples, or even if you go back to the Old Testament, you will see oftentimes that the prayer requests lifted up are very spiritually driven. They are about our relationship to God. They are about our walk with God. They are about the promises given to us by God. And so now that brings us to Paul's example of intercession. So as we look at verse 19, Paul says this, And pray on my behalf. 
And what is it that he wants us to pray? Well, he gives us the content of that prayer here. Pray on my behalf that, and here's the content of that prayer, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. Now, that word for utterance, it's the same word, logos, that we often use for literally word. So we talk about the Word of God, Jesus Christ, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is logos. That word for word is logos. But it doesn't always just mean word. It can be a statement. It could be any kind of message that's being given. And in fact, this is not totally foreign to us, because if someone were to come up to you and say, may I have a word with you? Anytime someone has asked me, may I have a word with you? They've never just given me one word, right? We understand that. We understand that they have a message, they have a request, they have something they want to describe to me, some information that they think I need to have. And so in this case, the logos, the word that is going to be given to Paul, this is any kind of message, any kind of statement. But what's interesting is that he says that his prayer is that utterance, that this word may be given. And the verb given, this is in the passive. It's in the passive. Paul is not the one doing the giving. He is the recipient of the giving, right? And in the Bible, whenever we have a passive verb, and especially in this kind of context, when we have a passive verb and the one doing the action is not mentioned, you can assume that the person doing the action is God himself. And that would make sense since this is a prayer after all. So I want you, in other words, Paul saying, I want you to pray that utterance or a word or a message would be given to me. Now, when Paul says that he wants a message given to him, he is not asking for extra revelation. He is not lacking in understanding. And we have to remember that his context here, he is in prison. He is in prison. In fact, he's going to make reference to that um, later in verse 20, in the very next verse when he says, when he identifies himself as an ambassador in chains, we remember that he is awaiting trial before Caesar. He's going to stand before Caesar, and his goal is going to be to share the gospel. Paul is not lacking in understanding of the gospel. If he was lacking in understanding, he would not have been able to write the book of Ephesians. He's not looking for fresh revelation. So Paul is asking that the Lord, that that God would give him utterance, would give him the message, would give him the right words. And it's the same thing, for example, like when you have to go and give an important message to someone and you don't have it all written down. You know the message in your head. But you want to be sure that when you finally talk to that individual that you're going to give the message clearly, right? You want to make sure that you're going to state it in a way that's going to be effective. You want to make sure that you're not going to shy away or that you're going to let fear take over and that you're only going to give some of the message or that you're going to proclaim it in a very soft way rather than with the force that it deserves. And so what we see here from Paul, and this is very important for us to learn from because Paul, we know from the book of Acts and throughout all his letters, he was a man of the gospel. Paul was not a man that we would associate with fear, right? He was bold. He was courageous everywhere he went. He proclaimed the gospel everywhere he went. And yet, Paul is asking for prayer from the Ephesians. 
And he is asking them that they would pray to God that God would grant him the right words to say that when he's in front of Caesar. Paul never stopped being completely dependent upon God for everything. Everything that we do, whenever we're fulfilling the will of God, everything that we do for the sake of Christ, we depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And we had just gotten through reading in verse 18 how Paul tells us to be in prayer at all times. To be in prayer at all times with all perseverance. You know, to be devoted to that task. To be doing it unceasingly. And so Paul actually gives us an example when he asks for you to pray for him. We're praying for him for something that we would normally think, he doesn't need help with that. He's done that millions of times. But Paul's saying, no, pray for me that utterance may be given to me, that the Lord God will give to me the words to say when the time comes. And not only that, but when in the opening of my mouth. So he is trusting that when he goes before Caesar, he's going to open his mouth, but he's hoping that the words will come out right. That the right utterance, the right words, and if you remember Jesus Christ when he was talking to his disciples, he said that the Holy Spirit will instruct you on what to say when you stand before kings and governors. And so we are completely dependent upon God for these kinds of tasks. And if Paul wanted people to pray for him in this kind of task, then how much more do we need prayer for these similar kinds of tasks? And then he goes on to say, so he says that he wants prayer that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. And then he goes on to say to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. So to make known. Paul already knows it. He's not asking that he knows it. He's not asking that he would know it. He's asking that it would be known to the people who he is speaking to. So to make known requires that he is going to proclaim, that he is going to teach, that he is going to proclaim the message, the gospel that has been given to him, and that he wants his audience to be able to know it to understand it, but he says to make known with boldness. Now, this word for boldness, going back in its uh, use in old Greek literature, the idea of boldness was this idea of freedom of speech, that you would speak freely. All right, so with boldness, it started off with speaking clearly, speaking freely, but as people were speaking in public freely, and that was one of the values of the Greeks. They valued their freedom of speech. You also have to recognize that as you speak freely that there may be opposition, right? Free speech means that you not only have the right to speak, but others have the right to disagree, right? And so if you're going to speak freely, and for the Greeks, they would often speak in public, and so this word is often used with Jesus when he was speaking out in the open in public, but to speak in public, knowing that opposition could come, requires some courage. It requires some boldness. And so that's where this meaning and this idea of boldness came from, that to be able to speak freely and clearly, knowing that opposition could come, is going to require some amount of courage, some amount of boldness. You can't be afraid of the disagreements that might come to you. By the way, this is one of the problems in our society today, you know, with what they call cancel culture. Right? If you say something that's politically incorrect, then you're going to be canceled. You might be fired from your job, or if you're some sort of public personality, you will no longer be hired 
for, for speaking engagements. Or if it's a TV show, then people are going to be encouraged to stop watching and advertisers are going to be encouraged to stop supporting. So there's this whole cancel culture and it actually, and even for your kids, it's good for them to understand this. When they go out to the universities, they're going to be exposed to this. Because on the universities, they have what's called safe spaces. You go to these safe spaces and no one is allowed to say anything that is against what you believe. So there's no freedom of speech, in other words. And when there is freedom of speech, you see what's happening. When people say something that disagrees with you, you are often accused of hatred, uh, bigotry, racism, whatever it may be. And it's just like, for instance, the LGBTQ movement. We are called by the Bible to call sin, sin. And if we're to call sin, sin, then homosexuality, which is reigning now with the LGBTQ movement, then we should be able to say that that is not according to God's design for us. But now if you say that, you may be labeled as homophobic, which actually is not even true to the word because homophobic means that you are afraid of. But no, if you're actually speaking, it's the opposite, right? You're not afraid of. Or they'll say that you're guilty of hate speech. No, hate speech used to apply to words in which you are uttering threats towards someone. You're uttering vile threats towards someone or slandering someone. That's what hate speech is. But to speak according to the truth of God is not hate. But going back to this passage, it requires boldness to be able to speak out, to be able to speak out the truth, and especially the truth of the gospel. It requires boldness on the part of Paul to be able to speak that out, and he says to speak out the mystery of the gospel. So looking at this entire verse, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. And the question is, well, what is that mystery? Well, when we go back to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Paul actually mentions one of the mysteries of the gospel. Going back to chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, he writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. So here he makes reference to this mystery. And he goes on to say, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And verse 5, he says, in other generations, this was not made known to the sons of men, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So this mystery is something that is new in the New Testament period that Paul and the other apostles are revealing. And verse 6, he says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul here, he talks about the mystery being really the fact that Jews and Gentiles are together in Christ. They are together in the gospel. But that is one possible explanation. The other explanation is that the idea of the mystery of the gospel is the gospel itself, right? Because if you're speaking to a non-believer, these truths that Jews and Gentiles are together, they're meaningless if you don't explain the gospel first, right? And so some commentators I've read, they've debated, well, he's talking about the fact that these people groups are now together as one, and others are saying, no, he's talking about the gospel. Well, I think they're both connected. 
And we kind of lose sight of this, but back then, I mean, realize this. Today, we have a very clear separation between Jews and Christians, right? We see them as two different people groups. But at that time, I would submit to you that it was not nearly as distinct to them as it is to us. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, because many Jews accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior starting on the day of Pentecost. But did you know that the word Christian was not even developed until many years later at the church in Antioch, the first Gentile church? That's where the word began to be used for Gentile believers. And so what I'm saying is that those Jews who accepted Christ didn't suddenly start saying, I'm no longer a Jew. Because by saying that they're a Jew, they means, it means that they believe what the Old Testament has written, but also that the Old Testament points forward to a Messiah, and now the Messiah has come, and we have put our faith into Him, just as the Old Testament told us to do. So what I'm trying to get at is that there really is no difference between a Jew who believes in the Messiah and a Christian. So the distinction at that time would not have been nearly as sharp. And Paul was known as a Jew. He is proclaiming the good news to the Gentiles. And as a Jew, he's going to them and saying that we are now one people group, but you don't have to jump through all these hoops that people used to have to do before if they wanted to be part of the people of God in the Old Testament. You don't have to jump through all these hoops, but now what you have to do is recognize that Jesus Christ has come and He has died for your sins, and that if you confess that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, if you repent of your sins and give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe in Him, then you are now a part of this family of God. You are now a part of the people of God. And so that was the good news from Paul, but you can see how as a Jew, without this sharp distinction between Jews and Gentiles, but Gentiles understanding that there was always a separation between them and Jews, and now Paul is saying, no, there's no more separation. That separation has been taken down by Christ. So what I'm trying to get at is when people are debating, is it the Unity of Jews and Gentiles, that is this mystery, or is it the gospel itself? What I'm trying to say is that it was the same message. He would proclaim the gospel and let them know that through the gospel, you are now part of the household of God. And when he stands before Caesar, he wants the boldness to be able to proclaim that truth. He wants to be bold. He wants to be fearless. He does not want to be gripped with fear of man. He does not want to be gripped with fear of his circumstances, whether he is going to live or die, how Caesar is going to respond to it. He wants to be faithful to proclaim this message, that even you, Caesar, you can be a part of the household of God if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is the message that he was looking to proclaim. And what's interesting here, when you think about it, Paul being in prison, and this is not, has not been a short period of time for him. Think about, if you read through the book of Acts, from the time he goes back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, and from there he gets challenged by the Jews, he ends up getting arrested, and then he appeals to Caesar. But from that time that he went to Jerusalem to the time that he went all the way up to Rome was a number of years. It was at least two years, probably closer to three years before he gets up there. And who knows how long he was actually in prison waiting to speak to Caesar himself. So he didn't want to be 
overcome with his circumstances, but when he made his prayer request, because if you think about it, if you're in his shoes, what would you pray for? I mean, just think about some of the difficulties you've been in recently, some of the circumstances of uncertainty in your life, whether it be health-related or financial, whether it had to do with a family member. And we tend to lift up prayers for that exact problem in front of us, and we should. But what I'm trying to tell you is this, is that Paul, though he had been in prison for years at this point, and he doesn't know if he's going to live or die, at this point, when he makes known to the Ephesians, here is my prayer request, here is how I want you to pray for me, he does not mention any of his circumstances. What he mentions is this, pray for me that I would be faithful to proclaim the gospel. And that is a reminder to us that even in this world, what matters most is the message of salvation. We can get caught up with all these issues in society. We can get caught up in trying to transform societies, solve the problems of society. And there are a lot of churches that devote themselves to doing that. And while those efforts by themselves are not bad efforts, we have to remember where the priority is because as long as we live in a world of unbelievers, you cannot expect unbelievers to start acting like believers unless they have the Holy Spirit, unless they are saved. Amen? And so transformation in society has to start from the heart. That is why we as a people, we are called to share the gospel. And that is why Paul here at the end of the spiritual warfare and at the end of teaching about prayer and how they are to pray unceasingly and they are to pray for all the saints. That's why Paul says, and I want you to pray for me that I will be faithful to preach the gospel when I finally stand before Caesar. Because ultimately that is what matters. And to Paul, it didn't even matter whether he lived or died. He just wanted God to be glorified. And the way God is glorified is by sharing the gospel. And so as we go on, we look at verse 20. We look at verse 20, and he goes on to say this, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Now, this is highlighting a couple of truths that I don't want you to miss. An ambassador in chains, first we'll take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And that is the same word being used in Ephesians. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here's something I want you to understand. Whenever you are sharing the gospel with someone, you are not representing yourself. You are not even representing the church. You are not representing your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You are an ambassador of God himself. You are an ambassador of Jesus Christ himself. What you are proclaiming is exactly what God wants to have proclaimed to them. And you have the authority of God himself to proclaim that message to those who need to hear it. It doesn't matter how they respond. It doesn't matter if they reject it, if they don't like it, if they get angry about it, and all those things might happen. But we have to remember that as ambassadors, and we think about in this world, ambassadors. So if we have an ambassador of the president come here, we would treat that ambassador with the same respect that we would treat the president. Because that ambassador is going to bring the same message that the president himself would bring if he were here. 
An ambassador is a representative who carries that same authority, carries that same message. And so what I want for each and every one of you who are in Christ to understand is that each and every one of you are ambassadors of our Lord Jesus Christ. You represent Christ. You have the authority of Christ. And because of that authority, you have no choice but to proclaim that message. An ambassador who does not give the message that he has been told to give is a poor ambassador. We want to be able to give that message. And so we understand that we are ambassadors, we are representatives, we have the authority of God to give the message that God Himself wants everyone to hear, that Jesus Christ Himself wants everyone to hear. But not only this idea of ambassador, but Paul has already made a couple of references in the book of Ephesians about how he is a prisoner. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, Ephesians 4.1, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord. He has reminded us a couple of times already that he is in prison. But ultimately, what he says in those two verses, one is that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. The other, he says he is a prisoner of the Lord. Though he is in chains, and though he is awaiting his day before Caesar, though he is under the authority of Caesar to remain in chains, he ultimately recognized there is no authority except that which comes from God. And he is ultimately a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And in fact, he is the one that made the appeal. He made the appeal to be able to see Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, the representatives, the government representatives, were obligated to bring Paul before Caesar. So he actually made that appeal, and so he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. But going back to the original statement, the original phrase was he is an ambassador in chains. So he is an ambassador for Christ in chains. And it's interesting, the wordplay here, because when we think about an ambassador in chains, an ambassador is someone who travels. An ambassador is someone who is on an envoy. He has a mission to accomplish. But in this case, Paul says he is an ambassador in chains. And it's interesting that he is an ambassador for the Most High God. He is standing before a human authority, and yet he is in chains, though he represents the Most High God. And while he is in chains representing the Most High God, standing before Caesar, he is going to deliver the message that says this, that I willingly put myself in chains so that I can come before you and share the gospel. So that I can come before you and show you how you can have reconciliation with God. I am willing to put myself in chains. I'm willing to give up that kind of freedom because I am ambassador. I am an ambassador of the king. And I've come here from the highest king of kings to give a kingly message. That by giving up your life to Christ, you may have salvation. And then at the end of chapter 20, he finishes this off. So for which I'm an ambassador in chains that... In proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And I have the word proclaiming that's actually not in the Greek. It just, he literally says that in it, I may speak boldly. Well, what's the it? Well, the it is referring to the gospel that he must proclaim. So that's why the interpreters put the word proclaiming in there. But he says that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly 
And that word boldly shows up again. It's the same word as boldness in verse 19, except in verse 19, it's a noun. And here in verse 20, it's a verb. And this idea, when you take boldness and you turn it into a verb, it's the idea that you're going to speak forth in confidence. You're going to speak forth in boldness. You're going to proclaim the truth in boldness. And Paul is going to do that knowing that the man he's going to stand before has the authority to put him to death. He is going to stand before a man that he knows has great authority over the Roman Empire and has authority to send Paul to his death if he doesn't like what he hears from Paul. And yet Paul is saying that he is emphasizing that he is an ambassador of the highest king. And he is asking for prayer that he would speak with boldness and confidence and courage without any fear to proclaim to Caesar who the real king really is. And so we see here the, really the priority of Paul as I had mentioned it. And he is just emphasizing again that in proclaiming it, he wants to be able to speak boldly as I ought to speak. So he realizes that speaking boldly is not about getting brownie points. Speaking boldly is exactly how we are to speak when it comes to the gospel. When you give the gospel, when you give the gospel, the people who hear it, whether they think the message is ridiculous or not, you want them to be able to see in you that you believe it that you know it's true, that when you share it, you know you're representing God whether they accept it or not. They might think you're delusional. I just heard the, read the words of an atheist the other day that just referred to God as the big giant sky daddy. And he said that people are not to be taken seriously when they believe in a big sky daddy. And realize that in this world, people are going to respond to that, and especially now in this time. You see, as we look at this nation, you can look at the history of this nation, you can look at the founding of this nation, and you understand that the United States were founded on Judeo-Christian values, right? And a lot of the fact that we were founded on Judeo-Christian values is much of the reason why we as a country, why the United States as a country has enjoyed so much success. But you know now, as we look out into the nation, as you look out into the world, when you look out into what people are doing, what's happening in politics, you see that we're moving further and further and further and further away from those values which made this country what it was. Now, don't get me wrong. Those values don't make this a Christian nation. What makes us Christian is our confession in Christ. But what I'm trying to say is this, is that this nation is moving further and further away from God's truth. And as this nation moves further and further away from God's truth, you can be sure that the truth is going to look more and more crazy to them. That is, their crazy thinking takes them further away from what is the absolute truth. They're going to look at the truth and they're going to think it is absolute foolishness. But we proclaim it anyway. We proclaim it with boldness. We proclaim it knowing we believe it. We proclaim it knowing that even if they mock us, even if they doubt us, even if they say we're crazy, no matter what they do, we know who we represent. We represent the King of Kings. And that is a message we give to them, and we want them to hear it and understand it. But we recognize that as this world gets more and more deviant in its behavior, that they're going to respond even more and more wickedly against the truth. We recognize that. We recognize it and we want to 
be able to expect it, but also recognize that no matter how dark the situation may be, no matter how lost a person may be, it is not you who saves that person. It is God who saves them. And God saves him through the proclamation of the gospel. You give the gospel knowing that the gospel is a divine message. You bring that message from your mouth to their ears, and you trust God to bring that message from their ears to their heart. Only God can do that. And so that's why we depend upon God not only to give us the right words, but we depend upon God to help bring about understanding in that person. And we don't know when God does that or when He's not going to do it. That's not our job to know. Our job is to proclaim the truth and to continue doing it. And you never know that when someone may finally see the truth and respond to it. I know if I went around, I know many of you did not respond to the gospel the first time you heard it. Many of you had to hear it many, many times, maybe over many years, maybe even over many decades before you finally responded to it. But this is our charge. This is our priority. And that was Paul's priority. That's exactly why he was praying for this. And we see a similar request in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Colossians is a very similar book to the book of Ephesians. And in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, this very much looks like what he said in Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 2, he says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Does that sound familiar? That's very close to what he said in Ephesians. But look at verse 3. He says, Praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. Both the letter of Colossians and the letter of Ephesians were written right around the same time. In fact, it might have been delivered by the same person on the same trip. He's writing to both the Ephesians, he's writing to the Colossians, and he is expressing the same prayer request in both cases that God would give me, would open up a door and give me the boldness to be able to speak boldly the mystery of the gospel. And even in the book of Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, Philippians 1, 18 through 20, in this case, he doesn't ask for a prayer request, but he knows that they're already praying for this. He knows what the Philippians are already praying for, probably because he's already asked them to pray for this. And so in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. And that word deliverance, that, that word deliverance in the Greek, it's the same word we use for salvation. It can refer to our spiritual salvation or it can refer to just physical deliverance through a difficult trial. But he is not talking about spiritual salvation. He's already saved. He already has his salvation. And I don't think he's talking about physical deliverance because at the end of verse 20, he says that he wants Christ to be exalted, whether by life or by death. But the deliverance that he is asking for through the prayers of the Philippian church is very much the same. We read on, deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So the provision of what the Spirit provides. Verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, the same word, parousia, it's the same word used in Ephesians, that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. How does he do that? 
He does that by continuing to share Christ. By continuing to share Christ. And so we trust that he will be able to do that. And so we see from those verses just Paul's overriding emphasis upon the gospel, and it should be our emphasis. When we look at the world and we see all the problems in the world, I want you to understand very clearly that the greatest problem of unbelievers who are around us is not the political situation. It's not their physical situation. It's not the COVID situation. It's not their family situation. It's not their work situation. It's their need for Christ. It's their need for Christ. And so as we get to now the final greetings, the closing of Ephesians, and we can go through this much more quickly. Verse 21, he gets to his end and he says this, but that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. Tychicus, as we see from this letter, came with the letter. He was probably tasked with bringing the letter to the people in Ephesus. And so as he's bringing the letter, he has them read the letter, and in the letter he commends Tychicus to them, saying that he is a beloved brother, faithful minister, and he will let you know anything else you want to know about my situation. He will make everything known to you, but also in verse 22, it says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. It is totally understandable that these churches that were founded by Paul would have a concern for Paul with him being in prison. If I was put in prison, I would expect that you guys would have concern for me as well. I hope. No, I trust you would. But it's totally understandable that, of course, they would be concerned for him. In fact, when you read through the book of Philippians, Philippians sent Epaphroditus all the way to Rome just to give comfort to Paul. But he says this, I'm sending Tychicus so that he will be able to answer whatever questions you have and he may comfort your hearts. But here's what I want you to notice, that Paul's personal circumstances were secondary to his exhortations to the church. So when you think about it, Paul has written this entire letter. And of course, the church wants to know, how is Paul doing? What are his circumstances? Are they taking care of him? Is he having enough to eat? Is he having enough to drink? When is he going to see Caesar? Who has he seen up until this point? They want to know all those details, but Paul doesn't write about those details. He writes about his exhortation to the church. He reminds them of the blessings that they have through the gospel. He reminds them of the way in which they are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which they have been called. And when it comes time for him to ask for prayer, he prays that he be given the boldness to speak clearly the gospel when the time is right when he stands before Caesar. And so this letter that was given to the Ephesians, this letter that would be studied and read and reread by not only the church in Ephesus, but probably multiple churches in that area, this letter that would be read multiple times, Paul's priority was to make sure that the exhortations to the church were in the letter. And any questions they had about his personal circumstances, you can ask Tychicus. But that's not going to be in the letter because that's not By comparison, that's not important. And so we see that example from Paul. And then as we get to the last two verses, Paul says this, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you remember this, we talked about peace in the very first message of Ephesians when I was going through the introduction because Paul actually in Ephesians chapter 
1, verse 2, he says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he talks about peace, we often think about peace as being an absence of war, right? But peace was a lot more than that. When he says peace, this goes back to the Hebrew word for shalom. You've probably heard that word before, shalom. And shalom is a lot more than just an absence of war. It's just, it's prosperity, it's well-being, it's harmony. So peace entails a lot of wonderful concepts. And so when he says peace, he's not just talking about an absence of war. And we saw that word peace there in Ephesians. We saw it later in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Actually, it's not peace here, but he now emphasizes love in verse 15 of chapter 1. He says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints. And so when we look again at that verse, going back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23, it says, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is praying, he is wishing them peace amongst them, peace, harmony, prosperity amongst them, a, a peace also that comes from the removal of the barriers between people groups, the, the peace that means that they are reconciled to God, but not only peace, but love with faith, that they have love for one another and that they also have, not only have that love, but they have that faith that's given by God. So from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we get to the last verse. Last verse, verse 24, he finishes off with, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. And so he wishes grace upon all those who love the Lord. And of course, those who love the Lord are those who are saved. Prior to being saved, we hated God. We hated the Lord. Those who reject Jesus Christ hate the Lord. But those who, who accept, who understand, who believe who Jesus Christ is, they love the Lord. God gives us that love for Him. We love the Lord, and it says, with incorruptible love. And the word love doesn't show up. It just says, with incorruptible or undying. And the idea is that our love for the Lord is incorruptible. It cannot be taken away. It, is, it, is, it cannot be corrupted. It is never-ending. And that really speaks towards our eternal security. That when you are saved, when you make that confession for Christ, you are protected for all eternity. You will have a love for God that is incorruptible. You will have a love for Jesus that is incorruptible. It doesn't mean that you won't have bad days. It doesn't mean that you won't have your days of frustration or days of where you're asking why this is happening or where you're struggling with your spiritual walk, but that ultimately that love that you have for Jesus Christ will endure. And if you are here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me encourage you that you have no salvation with God. You have no promise of eternity in heaven. You have no love for God unless you understand who God is and what He expects of you. You see, God's love for you was demonstrated by sending His Son into the world because you are a sinner just as all of us are, including myself. Everyone here, we were all sinners. The only man ever to live who was not a sinner was Jesus Christ Himself. So all of us as sinners, we will all stand before a holy God and we will all have to give an account and we will all be judged guilty before Him. None of us have peace. All of us need reconciliation. 
And the only way God the Father, being a perfect judge, being just and righteous, the only way He could reconcile us to Him is by sending His Son into the world. Because His Son, being both God and man, would live the perfect life that we could not live. And then not only would He live the perfect life, but then He would submit Himself and go to the cross and die on the cross to pay for the sins He died on the cross to pay for the sins that each and every one of us deserve to pay for all eternity. So God's love for you, and we often say God is love, God is love, God is love. You cannot understand the love of God unless you first understand God's judgment, His righteousness, and how you are guilty before Him, and He has no choice but to condemn you. But it was by sacrificing His own Son on the cross that He provided us with salvation. And the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, if you want to talk about injustice, that is the greatest injustice in the history of mankind, by far. But that greatest act of injustice was also the greatest act of love, because by sending His Son to die on the cross, He provided salvation to everyone who confessed His Son. And so if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, all that is required of you is this. If you understand that you are a sinner, if you understand that you are facing judgment, that it will lead to eternal condemnation, it will lead to eternity in the lake of fire. If you understand that righteous judgment that is awaiting you, and you understand that Jesus Christ is the only one who can save, That when we talk about Jesus Christ dying on the cross, He is the only one that could have paid for your sins because He is the only one who is perfect. He died on the cross in order to pay for your sins. And now what is expected of you, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, is that you would repent of your sins. You would repent of your former way of walking. And now that you would give your life to Jesus Christ and walk after Him. You would believe in Jesus Christ. That's what we mean when we say put your faith into Jesus Christ. You recognize that He is both Lord and Savior, and now you're going to live according to that reality. And all it takes right now is to just confess. Confess that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ, you are putting your faith into Him for the forgiveness of sins and for the salvation of your soul. That's all it takes. None of us brought anything None of us contributed anything to our own salvation. Jesus Christ did it all. And for the rest of us, may we never lose sight of the beauty and the importance of that gospel message. The fact that we indeed are ambassadors and the book of Ephesians calls us to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And a lot of that involves how we function within the church, our love for one another, our support for one another, the way we build up one another how we are growing together in truth and we speak the truth in love to one another. But as the book ends, it ends with the spiritual war, recognizing that we are surrounded by spiritual war and we must be ready to engage it each and every day. But the very last part of that spiritual war that Paul focused upon was prayer. We must be in prayer at all times and we must remember that ultimately we are ambassadors of Christ. And like Paul, who wanted the boldness to be able to speak the truth, to Caesar, we too must continually go to God and ask for both doors to open as well as the boldness to share the truth of God, no matter what or how they might respond. Let us pray.